0: Corey, you and I have talked about inflation in a number of different contexts. We've mentioned how housing costs have gone up significantly, gas prices have shot up. There are so many ways that we're seeing inflation, but you might not be aware of this one. This is from an article that says, For the current week, the average U.S. price of chicken breasts rose to $3.93 per pound at major supermarkets, sharply higher than last week's $3.14. Cent price. A year ago, the price was $2.48, the agriculture department says. So in percentage terms, how much of a percent increase is that? Corey, I'm so glad you asked. It's a 58% increase.
1: So significantly higher than what the inflation rate for everything else has been.
0: Yeah that's correct and obviously there are a lot of reasons for why inflation is happening across multiple industries but this came from an article called What We Know About the Deadliest U.S. Bird Flu Outbreak in Seven Years and at one point it says nearly 23 million birds have died. It's the worst U.S. outbreak of the avian flu since 2015 when more than 50 million birds died. The outbreak is driving up consumer prices for eggs and chicken me that, like many costs, had already been rising due to inflation. And there has been so much attention toward the coronavirus, toward COVID, rightfully so, that I don't think many people are even aware that there's been this big outbreak that's killing lots of birds.
1: Yeah, I think the general population, for the most part, probably really doesn't know much about this so that it's happening. I've seen several articles about it pop up like on the subreddit. It's something that people are talking about partly because of the inflation and what it's doing to prices of both eggs and chicken overall, partly because of what it's doing to the economy as far as the farmers or the companies who this is affecting. But also I've seen a few people mention sort of the fear that this raises the possibility of bird flu jumping from chickens to other animals or possibly
0: even to humans, which is something that's happened in the past. And you know, that's a valid concern. There have been a couple of cases where there's been some degree of global panic around a bird flu. You may remember the swine flu, right? There's these zoonotic diseases, and we're going to get to that. If you can't tell already, this episode is one in which we're going to be talking about infectious diseases And if you can't tell already, you should get better at reading the title of episodes because we literally said it right there. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, when I listen to a podcast, usually I'm not looking at my phone as it plays the next episode and then the next, if I'm kind of binge listening. That's valid. If you're binging, sure. Anyways, you may remember that at one point earlier on in the podcast, we did an initial episode on diseases and the part that diseases play in the broader context of collapse. From the start... We titled that episode, Disease Part 1, because we knew that there was much more to talk about. If you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend you take the opportunity first to go back and listen to that one before listening to this one. That one was episode 34, and in it, Corey, you talked quite a bit about antibiotic resistance and presented some really compelling numbers and evidence around why that is a major risk. There are diseases that are developing resistance to antibiotics, mostly as a result of people misusing antibiotics around the world. We also talked about melting permafrost, and some of the just wild things that have come from permafrost melt, you know, things that have been frozen for tens of thousands of years can immediately be revived and be infectious. We also talked about more disease potential as collapse progresses, from mass migrations and increased poverty... One thing we didn't mention there, but it comes to mind, you know, when I lived in a foreign country for part of my life, I was getting sick all the time. And yet the people from that country could eat the same food and not get sick the way that I would. And I think sometimes we forget that when you're in a different place, everything is different. The things that people are immune to and and the food you eat and everything about it is a little bit different. So when we talk about mass migrations in particular, we're not just talking about people From one country bringing a disease over to another country, although that is a significant part of it. It's just also that all of that mixing of people dramatically increases the risk of infectious disease. You know, I mentioned recently that my mom started listening to the podcast and
1: she told me the other day that our episode on infectious diseases, the first one, was particularly freaky to her, especially the part about Permafrost. I just thought that was funny that she's brought that up a few times. Just gotta shout out my mom at every chance I get. Hi, Corey's mom. But anyway, it's interesting because there's all these potentials for diseases all around us. And it always feels like a hypothetical until it actually happens. Prior to COVID nineteen the thought of a pandemic, the word pandemic even just seemed sort of fear mongering. You know, it was like one of those things that we hadn't truly experienced something from a movie. And then it happened. And the world got to see what it was like to live during a pandemic. And we're still seeing what it's like to live during a pandemic. And compared to other past pandemics and even potential future pandemics, COVID, the the death rate itself may have been mild. But I do think it would be interesting to take a second and take a look at how the world has changed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's obviously more to bring up here than, than we have time to. We could dedicate an entire episode to talking about what COVID-19 has done to the world, but just a few interesting numbers. So in the U.S., we broke a million deaths. And it's interesting because it happens so quietly. So many people may not even know that we hit officially a million deaths. And of course, that's a million deaths that have been officially counted. It's likely that the death toll has been higher than that. But When you think about that, like a million people, it's hard to picture that many people, you know, in one place to try and grasp how vast that is. And then globally, the number showing around 6.0 one eight, six point two million. And that number is likely to be very underreported just because there are so many nations that didn't keep track well, whether that was intentional or not, you know, have fudged the numbers, places where reporting just wasn't as widely available. So it's likely much higher than that. Overall, global life expectancy dropped almost two years in just 2020 alone. So that was like almost a 3% drop in life expectancy because of one disease. Financially, around the beginning of 2021, estimates were between 24 and $28 trillion in economic costs. And Pinning down economic costs was difficult for me just because there were so many different varying numbers depending on how it was calculated and such. One article went so far as to say more than $100 though I'm not really sure how they calculated that. But it is wild to consider everything that's happened to the economy, how in some ways it slowed things down so badly, hurt so many people in their jobs, and at the same time also caused this wild increase in consumerism as well. There was this severe imbalance for who it affected. The poor and minorities were most harshly affected both by economic loss and also by the disease itself, while the wealthy became wealthier and they were also most likely to be treated better for the disease, receive better
0: healthcare. It's interesting when you start to hear a recap of what COVID has done, because in 2020, there was such an initial panic. It upended so many things. The healthcare system, our education system, so much about social interaction. You know, there's so many things that changed, but really wasn't that long until it just kind of became the new normal. And I think you could throw out just about any numbers of COVID deaths If you were to tell me, Corey, a certain number of people died from COVID today, almost regardless of whatever that number is, I wouldn't think much about it. It wouldn't really shock me. And so as you recap that, to me, it's a little bit of a reminder how desensitized we become. Yeah. And what's interesting is that COVID didn't
1: necessarily
0: create a
1: crisis in all these different areas. In some ways it did, but in a lot of ways, it just exacerbated crises that already existed. It showed the cracks in the system that we already have. Healthcare was already broken, right? Or breaking. COVID just did more to push it over the edge, but it also exposed what was happening in the healthcare system and made it more viewable by a wider audience. There's already decreasing mental health, right? And an increase in depression. And then we isolate people and and mix everything up, make the world all hectic and weird. And that increased, but at the same time exposed that it was a problem that was already happening. And you could look at so many different sectors, the supply chains, how long it takes for us to get The goods that we're used to, inflation and increasing costs because of that and because of the increasing debt that we've had to take on as a nation, as a world, household debt and how that's increased. Housing. There are so many people who now don't have access to housing that would have three years ago because of how much housing prices have increased and how much rents have increased. And now suddenly all over the nation, it's suddenly been normalized that we don't pay our student debt, right? Biden just announced again that student debt loans were going to be put off for another six months or so. And so it is fascinating to see how much has changed. But like you said, how quickly so many people have reverted to just making it a new normal and just accepting it. Like you said, the numbers, they're hard to comprehend and at some point they're meaningless. I could have said 1 million people died in the US. I could have said 10 million people have died in the US. And for a lot of people, that might not really mean too much. It just becomes a number. In the end, it comes down to how it affects us personally, it feels like. You could tell someone that 10 million people died and maybe they'd hardly bat an eye, but you could tell them that Amazon delivery is going to take four days now instead of two. And it's like this big deal, right? It's about how people are affected personally so often, which is so unfortunate. So many people have been affected by this. Again, whether that's through job loss, whether that's through loss of a loved one, or whether that's through losing their own life, or of course, and this is a huge thing that many people don't talk about the effects of long COVID, the debilitating effects of the consequences of COVID in the long run, which we still don't fully understand, and which we're sure to learn more about in the coming years. So anyway, I just think it's fascinating to think back to 2019 when the idea of a pandemic was just this ridiculous science fiction idea. And now here we are two, nearing two and a half years into a pandemic and realizing that this is probably not the last one. And many scientists are saying we'll see many more pandemics and some likely in our lifetimes.
0: Yeah, seeing another global pandemic isn't just something that's possible, there are some converging factors here that make it quite probable. We mentioned several of those in our last episode about disease, but here as we're talking about COVID-19, the coronavirus, you know, there are continual emerging coronaviruses, and obviously there's all sorts of talk and conspiracies, whatever, about the origins of COVID. It's pretty clear that it came from Wuhan, China. You know, some would claim that it, was developed in a laboratory. Most evidence points to it coming from a wildlife market and that it was probably from a wet market where there are a variety of wild animals. Some of them are really rare, threatened ones. You've got pangolins on display being showcased and purchased and slaughtered. But COVID, this coronavirus, is an example of A zoonotic disease, and if you hadn't heard that term before, a zoonosis or a zoonotic disease is an infectious disease that is transmitted between species from animals to humans, or technically from humans to animals. One thing that's really shocking to me is that the World Health Organization shows 61% of all current human diseases are zoonotic in origin. But what's really scary, 75% of emerging human diseases are zoonotic. Meaning that we're seeing this big increase in infectious diseases with 75% of them being zoonotic. So I want to talk about some of the reasons why we're seeing that. And a lot of it has to do with our modern lifestyle and what we're doing as a global population. But first let me give you some examples of different types of zoonotic diseases so so that you recognize just how prevalent they are and maybe you know the ways that we've been seeing these all along. You may remember the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. There are two categories of influenza. There's influenza A and influenza B. Influenza A viruses are found in lots of different animals. You've got ducks, chickens, pigs, whales, horses, seals, cats. Influenza B are viruses that circulate widely, but only among humans. And so there's zoonotic influenza. There's salmonella, which you hear about all the time. You hear outbreaks of it. That's a bacteria that causes about 1.35 million infections, 26,500 hospitalizations, and 420 deaths just in the United States every year. So, I mean, on the grand scale, not a ton of people die, but that is a lot of people that get sick. If we're talking about 1.3 million infections in the United States every year, you know, that's like one in every 300 people. One that you've probably heard a lot of scare over here and there is the West Nile virus. And just so you know, that there are no vaccines to prevent West Nile virus or medications to treat West Nile virus in people. And if you are familiar at all with West Nile virus, you'll know that it's a mosquito-borne illness. And I think it's worth pausing here while we're talking about zoonotic diseases There are a lot of diseases that are carried by mosquitoes. They might not even have any impact on the mosquitoes themselves, but the mosquitoes are the carriers. And so you get malaria and dengue, West Nile, Zika, yellow fever. There's others as well. But this blows my mind. I'll just read this statement. The general consensus of demographers is that about 108 billion human beings have ever lived and that mosquito-borne diseases have killed close to half. 52 billion people, the majority of them young children. That is wild. I never would have expected that. And one thing that's scary about that is that we're on a warming planet, which means every year there are more and more areas where mosquitoes can thrive. And just as an interesting side fact here, there are over 3,500 species of mosquitoes. And the estimated number of total mosquitoes in the world is in the quadrillions. Okay, that's another fact that I would not have expected. In the quadrillions, that's insane. So to me, that one is terrifying. I think there are high chances that we can expect an increase in mosquito-borne diseases. So I
1: just did some quick math here on my calculator, and maybe I did this wrong because it was was quick. If there was even just one quadrillion mosquitoes and 8 billion humans, that means there are 125,000 mosquitoes for every single human being. If it's in the quadrillions, if it's more than a quadrillion but multiple quadrillions, then obviously you're multiplying that 125,000 times however many quadrillions we're
0: talking about. It makes me sick. That's a wild fact. Yeah, and who knows? I mean, I'm sure there are all sorts of estimates of how many grains of sand there are on the planet. But when you think of the methods for trying to calculate that, you can probably give or take trillions and nobody would ever know. So who knows how accurate that is so just a couple of others. These ones are less common in our day and age, but you know, the plague, you think of the bubonic plague, all the death and carnage that was caused by that. Fortunately, we don't have to worry a whole lot about it anymore. There are only seven human plague cases reported each year in the US. And there are other examples. You think of Lyme disease, you think of rabies, but again, going back to that number that 75% of emerging human diseases are zoonotic, according to the World Health Organization. It begs the question, why? Why are we seeing so many of these emerging diseases? And there are some really interesting reasons. One of them that I hadn't really thought about goes back to our conversation, Corey, on modern agriculture and the increasing demand for animal protein is a big reason why we're seeing this increase in zoonotic diseases. Over the last 50 years, there has been a 260% growth in meat production, a 90% growth in milk production, a 340% growth in the production of eggs. And so Around the world, we're just consuming more and more animals. Along with that, there are some really unsustainable agricultural practices. Domestic livestock farming often includes animals being packed together in a very small area. And obviously, they're being farmed by humans. And so, there are people in that area One article states, domestic animals are being kept in close proximity to each other and often in less than ideal conditions. Such genetically homogenous host populations are more vulnerable to infection than genetically diverse populations because the latter are more likely to include more individuals that better resist disease. And one example that's given is, you know, the factory farming of pigs has promoted the transmission of swine flu. And a lot of that has to do with a lack of distance, physical distance between the animals. A few more reasons I'll mention. One of them is the increased use and exploitation of wildlife. So harvesting wild animals for protein, which maybe in the US, we don't think a whole lot about that. But it's reported that in 62 developing countries, people obtain more than 20% of their nutrition through wild meat. And on top of that, there's recreational hunting. There's people wanting exotic animals as pets. There's zoos. And um, there's also a factor at play here with urbanization. You get people encroaching on wildlife. And that can happen through deforestation and populations that are kind of on the fringes of a geographical societal center. You know, people that are out closer to wildlife have a lot more contact with wildlife But also in a lot of countries where this is taking place, even just irrigation, the water that they're using has lots of remnants from animal waste, disease that's floating downriver from dead animals upriver. Another big factor is travel and transportation. One interesting way to think about it is diseases can now travel around the world in periods shorter than their incubation. Meaning from the time that somebody's exposed to a disease and the time when they start to first show clinical signs of that illness, people can already have traveled to the other side of the world. You know, there are changes in food supply chains. There are the, these wet, they call them wet markets or fresh produce markets in growing cities. We've got industrial meat processing plants. Corey, you, you heard me describe my experience working in a meat processing plant. And when these industrial facilities have animals being shipped in from all over the country, that makes traceability or, or knowing where a disease actually comes from really difficult. And then I kind of mentioned this before, but climate change, we've talked about kind of global weirding and there are some diseases that thrive in cooler environments and some diseases that thrive in warmer environments. And we're mixing all that up across the planet. And then you factor in, like I mentioned before, all the mosquitoes that can thrive in new environments and the cockroaches and the rats and, you know, all these areas of the world that haven't seen the kind of diseases that have existed in other parts of the world. And really, all of those reasons that I've mentioned, you know, our lifestyle and the way that we're traveling around the world and the way our population is growing and the climate change that's taking place and the more consumption of meat, all of these things are human-caused reasons for why we're seeing so many emerging zoonotic infectious diseases. One of the quotes that I saw in an article from a virologist said something like, you know,
1: people typically think of pandemics as this once in a hundred year thing. But he was saying that's just likely to not be the case in the future, that it is most probable But in the coming decades, we'll see more pandemics. And as you describe the increase in zoonotic diseases and their transmission and how much more likely it is as we become closer and closer in contact with wildlife, because I could see how someone would be like, we're destroying wildlife, like wildlife is decreasing, wouldn't it be more difficult for it to pass between us? But like you're explaining, we're encroaching so much more. We're in much closer proximity, there's all this destruction of their natural habitat, And all the other reasons that you mentioned that make it so that those diseases are much more likely to pass to humans
0: from animals. Yeah. And I'll mention that it really is the combination of factors, because if I think to my ancestors, 100 or 200 or 300 years ago, they all probably had a lot more contact with wildlife than I do. But in their day and age, if somebody got sick on the other side of the world, it would take a lot for that to get back to them. Whereas like I mentioned before, we're so globalized. You know, We've got product being shipped all around the world every day. We've got people moving all around the world every day. And they're all coming from different places with different animals, different levels of exposure, different levels of hygiene. We've got people that are Living in these urban areas so much more packed together than ever before. You know, riding the subway from here to there. Touching surfaces that hundreds or thousands of other individuals have come in contact with even that same day. There's so much that's all converging to make this a dangerous situation. It really just becomes
1: a numbers game, right? It's about probability. You know, hunter-gatherers, when maybe there was only a million people on the earth or in the millions of people, they were in much closer contact with nature. They were eating all sorts of different animals, probably not cooking them all the way through. And so maybe per person, the chance of a zoonotic jump in disease was higher But there were so many less people that the probability overall was still much lower. And even when a jump did happen, it was contained to a small group or clan of people and and didn't make it out of that group. Or at least the chances weren't as high of that happening. Whereas like you're saying today, there's 8 billion of us points of contact between man and nature, wild animals, has just increased exponentially. There's so many more possibilities, so many more chances for it to happen. And when it does, it's not contained to that one person. Because we're so globalized, it can so much more quickly be spread so that numbers game is certainly not playing into our favor. So I wanted to bring up a unique kind of disease that is not talked about very frequently. It's one that there's a lot of question marks around, but I think it's interesting to use this to be able to sort of highlight the types of potential disasters that we could be getting ourselves into in the future as we continue down this path of increased probability of zoonotic diseases. So maybe you've heard about these and maybe you have not. They're called prions. Killen, have you heard of prions before? Honestly, no, I haven't. So prions are fascinating. They are not a bacteria. They're not a virus. They're not fungi. They are not alive. You know, every time we talk about a disease, we're talking about some sort of living, multiplying bacteria, right? Or something like that. Prions are actually proteins. So all mammals have prion proteins and their exact purpose is still disputed. It's currently being researched. There's some ideas around what prions are for, But healthy prion proteins replace themselves pretty frequently. What happens is that occasionally these prions will misfold. They'll be folded incorrectly and that's what causes prion diseases to occur. So the folded prions don't replace themselves and they're super resilient. So it might start with one misfolded prion which can be genetic. It can also be something that is contagious so it's received through being infected. But one misfolded prion can then go on to cause other prion proteins in the body to fold incorrectly as well so it works in that way sort of in the same way as a multiplying bacteria or virus in this case it just causes other proteins to misfold so over time that spreads throughout the nervous system it goes into the brain and it causes fatal disease prion diseases are 100 percent fatal whether that's in animals or humans there is no cure So in humans, there are diseases like FFI, which stands for fatal familial insomnia, or CJD, which is Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But CJD causes loss of intellect and memory, things like changes in personality, loss of balance and coordination, slurred speech vision problems and blindness, abnormal jerking movements, and progressive loss of brain function and mobility. Basically, it's it's like dementia, and it can have a very fast onset. FFI, the fatal familial insomnia, to me is terrifying. This is like my worst nightmare. It causes insomnia that basically drives the person to insanity over the course of six months to three years before it eventually kills them. And if you can imagine just not sleeping for six months straight or whatever, you know, that just sounds... Terrible. There are some interesting YouTube videos out there. I'll try to remember to link some of them in the description that show a little bit about what that's like. So these diseases are are actually very rare in humans currently, somewhere around two to three cases per million people per year. It can spread from human to human, from contaminated instruments, like surgical instruments, or from touching parts of the body that's infected. So if you touch somebody's brain or other nervous system tissue that has it. And so they have to take great care to decontaminate surgical instruments after surgery. You know, if someone's been infected, if they know, they'll go through these crazy processes to try and sanitize the instruments or just throw them out. Or when autopsies are done, they have to take a lot of really careful care as well. And they usually suggest that those bodies are cremated after death as well. And most of that is because prions, again, are extremely resilient and most forms of cleaning agents can't even seem to kill them. So, Even though surgical instruments put in an autoclave doesn't tend to usually kill prions. And that's especially dangerous because a lot of times doctors aren't even aware if the person they're doing surgery on already has prion disease. The incubation period for prion diseases can be decades long. So, Kellen, earlier you mentioned the incubation period, which is the period between when you are infected with the disease and when you start to show symptoms. And in a short incubation period, that's better because there's less time for you to be spreading that disease, especially without knowing it. But with prions, where it's potentially decades long that you are spreading that disease without knowing it, you could be spreading it everywhere. And once these prion diseases do start to show symptoms, it happens very fast, usually within months from when the symptoms begin to when a person is dead. In animals, prion diseases are more prevalent than in humans. So you've likely heard of mad cow disease, which is a prion disease Maybe you've heard of chronic wasting disease. It's called CWD. So that's a disease that spreads amongst deer or elk, or you'll find them in reindeer or moose. They also call that one the zombie disease or the deer zombie disease because it causes these deer to have jerky movements or walk in abnormal patterns. You know, maybe they walk in circles and there's videos of that online as well. You can search that. It's kind of interesting. It basically takes over their brain and eats away at it. So when it comes to chronic wasting disease, hunters are very aware of this, and there are a lot of efforts put into place for them to check to make sure that any deer or elk that they kill don't have it. That being said, that doesn't mean that all hunters are as careful as they should be, and so in the past, multiple times, meat has been consumed from animals that have this chronic wasting disease. So why are we talking about this, right? Like, what does it have to do with collapse? Because so far, these animal forms of chronic wasting disease or these other animal prions have not been found in humans. It hasn't made that jump yet. But... That is not something that is guaranteed to last. And as a matter of fact, one article that I read said this, Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, said it's probable that humans will come down with this disease after eating meat in the years ahead. And again, remember, this is a 100% fatal disease with a decades-long incubation period. So there's something called a species barrier, and that makes it hard, it makes it difficult for the disease to jump from mammals or other mammals to humans, but that high enough doses or changes in the protein itself or other environmental factors can increase the likelihood that that jump can be made possible. So again, it's a numbers game. As we increase the contact that we're making with these animals as we're consuming them, if hunters aren't being careful, if people are consuming that meat or coming in contact with that meat, More often, it just increases the chances and the probabilities. Studies have shown that chronic wasting disease, which is what I just mentioned is in deer and elk and and moose, can jump from deer to other mammals and even non-human primates. So it seems they're not that far from the possibility of making it to humans. So this chronic wasting disease has infected certain monkeys and things like that. And the scariest thing to me is that it's also possible that prion diseases from animals like chronic wasting disease already have infected people and that people just don't know it yet, right? Because that incubation period is dramatically long, people haven't started showing symptoms and it's not something that's tested for. Doctors aren't going around testing everyone for prions because it's never been known to have made that jump. There hasn't been a case of it yet, so they're not looking for it. And they likely don't even have the infrastructure and testing sort of capabilities in place to do testing for it. So as we speak right now, animals with chronic wasting disease and other prions are spreading it through saliva, at salt licks, and through feces and urine. So anytime that a deer with chronic wasting disease pees on the ground, has a bowel movement, licks something, whatever, it is spreading those prions into the soil. Or even just when a deer with chronic wasting disease dies and decays, again, those prions go into the soil. It's been found that some prions also can be taken up by plants like alfalfa, corn, or tomatoes. They can stay in the soil for decades, reinfecting wildlife or new plants as they grow. So again, because prions are so resilient, they'll stay in the soil for decades. They'll get into the plants, which are then eaten by people or by other animals, just increasing that likelihood of species jump. So again, this is all hypothetical, right? This is not to say that this is what's happening or that it's going to happen, but it's kind of a scary thing to think about that as our human population grows and as we continue to encroach more and more on wildlife at the same time, breeding cattle, sheep, pigs closer and closer to us. We're contaminating our soil and our food with prions and we're moving more and more into areas where these prions are already prevalent. So if the jump ever was made to humans, this 100% fatal disease could become far more prevalent in us as well and could also become spreadable by our feces, urine, and saliva. We would have it in our system for decades before we ever knew about it and probably wouldn't know until it was too late and already had spread it to countless other people. And again, this is just kind of one of those out there, no one really knows what's going on or what the actual sort of status or situation is when it comes to prions or if it's made a jump to some human somewhere. And if it has, if that's spread to tens or hundreds or millions of other people in the meantime, and they just don't know it yet, right? Or it could be that this still has not made any sort of species jump. The barrier is strong enough and it hasn't. But it does highlight the risk and the types of sort of Russian roulette almost that we're playing with our increased urbanization and encroachment on wildlife. One thing that's interesting that I will mention is that there is a mystery disease that has recently sprung up in New Brunswick, Canada. And you can just Google this and find information. But just in the last few years suddenly people are getting sick with something in New Brunswick, and they haven't really been able to figure out what it is at all. And it looked a lot like CJD, which was the human form of prion disease, this Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. They've done testing. They've verified that that's not what it is. But people who suffer it are having these same sort of very fast onsets of dementia type symptoms and many people have died of it. And it's interesting because at first they had set up this whole like international panel of doctors, virologists, neurologists. They got them all together to try and figure out what was going on. And they were doing all these studies and research. And then all of a sudden, New Brunswick said, we're taking this in-house. Everybody has to leave. And they just shut everybody out from information. People don't know how many more people are getting sick with it. We don't know how many people are dying with it. But they are completely just blocking sort of the world from knowing what's happening. And it's not a weird like conspiracy that is actually what's happening and if you google new brunswick's disease you'll see all the articles talking about sort of the secrecy that new brunswick has the government has in regards to what's going on so people aren't able to find out what's happening it's this weird disease they can't figure out where it's coming from or what it is and i think yeah it's just really interesting to pay attention to that and and hopefully they are more transparent about it but what they're saying right now is that because New Brunswick is being so secretive about it, they're also not, the, the people that they've put in charge of doing the research, they are not qualified for this type of job. And so it's unlikely that they're ever going to really get behind what's going on. And hopefully whatever it is that's happening does not continue to spread. So I'm not implying that it's prion disease. A lot of people are, are curious if it's some type of connected to prion somehow But it is interesting to see a glimpse into what sort of a prion
0: outbreak could look like. What a bizarre situation. I think the thing that alarms me most outside of the fact that these prion diseases are, like you said, always fatal, is the fact that their incubation period or or the period of time in which somebody might not actually be showing any illness, even though they carry it, could be decades. You mentioned mad cow disease is one of these prion diseases. And I remember when there was so much panic about that. I think it's good that you call out that, you know, the the probability might not be that high. We haven't really seen mass chaos from prion diseases up to this point. But when you bring in the other factors that we talked about before for why zoonotic diseases are becoming more prevalent. It is a compelling case that we're setting ourselves up for failure. Prion diseases are the closest thing that humanity will likely ever get
1: to zombies, except for maybe some fungi. I think there is probably some weird fungal infections out there that could cause that type of thing. It's certainly a scary premise and it's not one that keeps me up at night simply because it's it's so far outside of my control, right? And it's nothing that We can do anything about, and once we find out that it's a thing, if it ever becomes a thing, even at that point, there's still nothing we can do. There's so many other more pressing issues related to collapse at the moment, but it is an interesting mental exercise, and it does sort of show, again, the dangers of infectious diseases and our encroaching on nature. We've sort of created this perfect storm, Kellen, like you described, of conditions required in order to allow for diseases, whether they're prion diseases or other zoonotic diseases,
0: to make that jump from one species to the next? I think because we have experienced COVID-19 pandemic, we can see just how far-reaching the impacts of a disease can be on our global society. And
1: how underprepared we are to cope with it, both as a society and within our government organizations.
0: Yeah, there are examples in the past of diseases bringing society to its knees. And it is a, a major player, among many others, when it comes to all these factors in collapse. An increase in infectious diseases accelerates collapse But also, the process of collapse increases the possibility of more infectious diseases and the likelihood. One thing I'll mention, I found this interesting. There's an article from March 3rd of 2020. So this was before everything we've talked about with the biggest impacts of COVID-19. And it states, according to a United Nations Environment Program report, in the last two decades, so the previous 20 years, basically from 2000 to 2020, emerging diseases have cost the world more than $100 And then it said, if each of them turned into a pandemic, the loss would amount to trillions of dollars with every single infection. And I'm here thinking about these prions that you just talked about. And this uptick in zoonotic diseases and the antibiotic resistance that we talked about before, the melting permafrost and the diseases that can come from that, the collapsing healthcare system, the increased war and conflict. You know, we talked about the mass migrations, the poverty, all these things that are a recipe for more infectious diseases and therefore an acceleration of collapse, which will just be a positive feedback loop causing even more infectious diseases i don't know like you said of all things what's worth actually losing sleep over <laughs> <laughs> but man we sure have an interesting future ahead of us